Amen. Scripture message today will focus on Isaiah chapter 40 and verses 27 to 31. Let us read Isaiah 40 in its entirety. Hear the word of the true and living God. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh, together, all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The voice said, Cry out! And he said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all the loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because of the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those who are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Measured heaven with a span and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure? Weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has taught him? With whom did he take counsel and who instructed him and taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket. They are counted as the small dust on the scales. Look, he lifts up the aisles as a very little thing. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor its beasts sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness will you compare to him? The workman molds an image, the goldsmith overspreads it with gold, and the silversmith casts silver chains. Whoever is too impoverished for such a contribution chooses a tree that will not rot. He seeks for himself a skillful workman to prepare a carved image that will not totter. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have, not, have you not understanding from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. 
He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Scarcely shall they be planted. Scarcely shall they be sown. Scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth. When he will also blow on them. And they will wither. And the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal? Says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things, who brings out their host by number. He calls them all by name, by the greatness of his might and of it, and the strength of his power. Not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak and to those who have no might. He increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Amen. Praise God for his holy word. Beloved congregation of the Lord, waiting is a big part of all of our lives. So much so that it can sometimes feel like our lives are just an endless series of waiting rooms. So you think, for example, you know what it's like to wait in traffic for the jam to clear, to wait in the grocery aisle to pay for your food. So many of these waiting rooms, we could say, are not very remarkable at all. But some of these waiting rooms are a bit more memorable than that. Some of us can remember what it was like to wait to graduate from high school, to wait to find your first job, waiting to find your spouse, waiting for your child to be born, waiting for your children to grow up. What kind of waiting room? are you sitting in today? Well, some of these waiting rooms are very hard places to endure. We could say they represent the trials and afflictions of life. Enduring circumstances that we never imagined, things that make every moment seem like an eternity. And those, I say, can be some of the hardest waiting rooms to withstand. And I don't think it helps that we live in a gratification-oriented society where waiting, it seems, is a lost art. We want what we want, and we want it now. Patience is rare, it seems. Perhaps you can think of someone Right now, you know, you, just by, by looking at them, they add to their frustration and their anxiety because they lack this most basic discipline of patience. We see that in 
we'd say human things, but it also concerns spiritual things as well. There is a kind of waiting which our text is speaking about, about that is unlike any other kind of patience, as you see it in verse 31 of Isaiah 40. Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. Now let's face this congregation. This is no ordinary waiting that we are talking about here. This waiting upon the Lord is one of the most precious graces which God bestows to his children. One of the most important exercises of our faith. You could say it's one of the great themes of the entire Bible. One of my favorite Puritans, by the name of William Ames, he described this grace in this way, that waiting upon the Lord is the inseparable companion of Christian hope. It's in the sphere of hope that we are talking about. And so you you understand, don't you, that God has given us many wonderful promises in his word, promises to his people, and yet there is a gap in time between the giving of those promises and the full enjoyment of them in the future. And so much of our stability in the Christian life, much of our maturity, much of our joy and usefulness, it is bound up with earnestly expecting God to deliver each one of his promises to us. That is what it is to wait upon the Lord. And so I put to you, this is something of the greatest importance, not only for our spiritual well-being, but also because God is glorified when his people wait upon him. So I'd like to consider verses 27 to 31 in writing over the sermon today. You must wait upon the Lord. You must wait upon the Lord. And I'd like to gather from these verses three main headings of teaching. The first is waiting upon the Lord is hard. The second is waiting upon the Lord is logical. The third is waiting upon the Lord is worth it. You must wait upon the Lord. Well, let's look here at verse 27 where I would first bring your attention. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God. Now on the surface, that is reasonably easy to understand. Here you have God speaking here through his servant, the prophet Isaiah. He is speaking to the old covenant people of God, to the church of the Jews. Therefore we understand he is speaking to Jacob and to Israel. On the surface, so easy, but it's helpful to look at the broader context to understand the import of these words that Jehovah God is speaking. 
It comes to us in one of the most precious parts of Isaiah's prophecy, this word of God in Isaiah chapter 40, which is filled with words of comfort. That's how it begins in verse 1. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. And if you're at all familiar with the flow and movement of Isaiah's prophecy, you know that these words were particularly written for the people of God when they desperately needed comfort. In the preceding chapter, Isaiah has laid out exactly what the future holds for the people of Israel, that their wicked sins have cried out for vengeance from heaven. And year after year of their stubborn resistance to the warnings of the prophets has led to this, that the people of the southern kingdom of Judah are going to be led into the horrible exile of Babylon. Many killed, many enslaved, and the worst of all, the wonderful worship of God headed in there in the temple will be removed from them as the supreme sign of God's displeasure and forsaking of his covenant people. Terrible forebodings for the future in judgment. And so, for that small remnant, according to the election and grace of God, those weak, struggling believers, so that their faith would not be extinguished, the Lord sends unto them these words of prophecy, which seem calculated especially to nurture and sustain the faith in the coming trials of the dark path of the future that holds in store for them. And perhaps you notice that some of these promises of comfort, they especially concern the coming of the Lord Jesus. I wonder, children, have you heard these words in verse 3 before? Do you know who they're talking about? The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Well, that's talking about John the Baptist. Maybe you've heard about him, John the Baptizer, who's sometimes called the forerunner, because he was preparing the way for someone so special and important. Indeed, he was preparing the way for the Lord. And the Lord he was preparing the way for is none other than Jehovah the Son, Jesus Christ manifested in our flesh, the Messiah. And Jesus, as the Messiah is spoken of really throughout this chapter, his coming under the New Testament era, you can see how he's spoken about in verse 11 in such a tender way. It said of Christ, he will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Jesus Christ, the good and the great shepherd to his people, the one mediator between sinful humanity and the living God. Now you would think, wouldn't you, with such wonderful gospel promises of comfort, surely these words would have the desired effect Surely that such words would be spoken unto the believers of the Jewish church. It would cause them to take comfort, to take courage, 
to look ahead, perhaps with a measure of relief and boldness. And yet, what do we see in our text? In verse 27, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God. You see, congregation, waiting on the Lord is hard. The Bible is a very realistic book. And in this verse, there's a number of reasons we are given why it is that the exercise of the grace of waiting upon the Lord is something that is meeting with so many difficulties and challenges among the people of God during seasons of trial. In the first place, we can gather from these words that waiting upon the Lord is hard because sometimes it seems as though God doesn't care. Notice how that's said here. My way is hidden from the Lord. Now the one who is speaking these words is speaking about his life. His life as though his life were a way or a path. I'm sure some of you have walked down a path in the woods before. Sometimes those paths or those ways can bring you down smooth terrain and beautiful scenery. Sometimes they take you down an unexpected turn and you encounter rougher terrain or challenging places. And so it is with our lives. They bring us, in the course of all of our choices, all of the circumstances of life in places we might not expect. And for this person who is speaking about his life in this metaphorical way, he is speaking of as one who feels utterly forsaken of God. My way is hidden from the Lord. The one who is saying these words believes that God doesn't see me. God doesn't know about me. His eyes are shut to my life circumstances with the clear implication that God simply doesn't care. And I think that for those of you who are true believers, you know that even in seasons of your life as believers, it can sometimes feel that way. Perhaps this is especially the case where we have great grand plans that we lay before us. We, so, we know how our life should go and ought to go. We're making our plans accordingly and all of a sudden something dashes all of our plans in pieces and life rather than a good and orderly plan seems as though it's all random and up for chance. Sometimes you can feel this way perhaps when we are isolated from others. Maybe not physically isolated, although sometimes that can be where you're separated from those who care about you. But sometimes the people can be close to you in their physical proximity, but be a million miles away from you as far as actually understanding what you are going through. And people look at you and they seem unsympathetic. They don't understand what it's like to deal with your challenges. Well, it's all too easy also to project that on God. Others 
don't know, others don't see, others don't understand, surely God is no different. That's a hard, a hard thing to endure. Of course, there's another reason why waiting on the Lord is hard, and that is, and I shudder even to say these words, but sometimes it seems as though God is unjust. It's even forced to us in the words of our text. My just claim is passed over by my God. So the one who is saying these words is speaking about God as he is a judge, as the judge of all the earth, as the judge of all of his creatures, as the one in charge of enforcing perfect justice upon all his creation. Well, here the one speaks about God in this way. This judge did not even hear my case. He threw me out of court without hearing my testimony and evidence. He didn't even give me a hearing. God is being unfair to me. God is not giving me my due. I'm not receiving as I deserve. Well, I should hope that if, there, if there's any Christian, they would shudder to even say those words out loud. But even among believers, I fear, there can be seasons in which that also lives in our hearts. Maybe especially when we compare our lives to others. You look at this person and that person, and their life just seems to be so together. It seems as though God has given them a very easy path and calling. And for you, it's, it's far different. God has afforded you much trials and tribulations. It seems as though you can barely hang on some days. How is that fair? Probably it's especially acute if we are the victim of abuse. Of any kind of abuse, whether it be physical abuse, emotional abuse, spiritual abuse. If people have dealt wickedly with us, if we have been the victim of great injustice, it can be a thing that distorts our whole view of God thought of someone afflicted in this way can come to think that God is out to get me. God seeks to destroy me. Here is one who has brought such evil in my life. How can I trust him? A terrible thing to endure such hardness. But there's a third reason why waiting upon the Lord is hard and that is really gathered from the whole verse 27, that sometimes it seems like unbelief is justified. That's really the thing to understand about these words. They are coming from a place of unbelief. Did you notice that these are not words spoken to God, but they're spoken about God as though he did not hear. Why do you say this, O Jacob? And so it's like, suppose you were to leave this worship service and there in the parking lot you overhear a gathering of the people in the church and they're actually talking about you. And, and as you grow closer, you actually hear that they're, they're speaking very unflattering and critical things about you. But as you get close enough that they can see you, their, their faces go red and they say, well, we're so sorry we didn't see you standing there. 
well, it shouldn't matter if you saw me standing there or not. You're talking about me, but not talking to me, not bringing your concerns to me. And it's an astonishing thing that even Christians and believers can deal with God in that way. I think it's striking if you would compare these words in verse 27 with what we see in the book of Job. We know that Job in the book of James, for example, is set forth as a model of patience. Consider the patience of Job, James said. And you read that book of Job and you hear about all that he went through. His, his family was killed and his health was poor and even his own wife and his closest friends, they were lying about him and bringing all these unjust accusations and he was brought to the very brink of the depths of despair. He had many questions of God. Lord, why is this happening to me? But you read up and down all those words in the book of Job and you see that this was a man of faith. At the very core of his confession was, Though he slay me, yet I will place my trust in him. But there's a very different spirit that can sometimes govern us. Not questions of God that bring us to a place of dependent trust that bring us to doubt, to discouragement, even to the, the very darkest places of despair. And I wonder, if you were to have ears to hear the voices of those in hell at this very moment, I wonder if these would be the sort of things you would hear. My way is hidden from the Lord, my just claim is passed over by my God. Lies, slander, unjust accusations against God, adding sin to sin, even in that place where the worm dieth not. Oh, do we not see that this, this matter of waiting upon the Lord is something about which we encounter innumerable challenges and difficulties left unto ourselves. It's not even sufficient to say that waiting upon the Lord is hard. Surely, in and of ourselves, it is impossible. And were the text to end off there, it would be a dark thing indeed, but all praise unto God. That is not where it ends. Look at what... The Lord says next, Have you not known? Have you not heard? Haven't you known? Haven't you heard? Well, here is the confessing people of God. Surely it's a trick question. They have known. They have heard a great many things about God. They've heard from their parents. They've heard from their teachers. They've heard from the prophets. But lest we look down upon the church of the Jews for their forgetfulness, let us recognize that this is also the way our hearts operate, brothers and sisters. Were it not for the fact that the Lord comes to us time after time with his word of promise, reminding who he is and how he deals with his people, we, each one of us, would find our faith diminishing and ultimately perishing apart from this, his great reminder. 
I've chosen to entitle the second point, Waiting on the Lord is Logical, which may seem like a clinical way to put it. But as you look at verses 28 to 29, I put to you that there is a great iron logic set forth here. What we have here is an argument about how reasonable, how logical, how wise it is to wait upon him. These mighty arguments are set forth in order to conquer our unbelief and to stir up that grace whereby we wait upon the Lord, expecting the fulfillment of his promises. So what is the first argument that we could gather from these words? Well, the first reason why waiting upon the Lord is so logical is because God is Jehovah. God is Jehovah. You notice in verse 28, we have that very familiar name of God in all capital letters. The Lord. L-O-R-D. Wherever the English Bible would translate that word in all capital letters, we know that in the Hebrew there is that word Jehovah. I am that I am. The mighty covenant name of God. It was revealed to Moses in that episode with the burning bush. Moses asked, Whom shall I say to the children of Israel that has sent me? I am has sent you. I am that I am. God defines and explains himself in this name, not in reference to anyone or anything else, but only to his self-existent nature. I am. He is the one who holds his life and existence of himself, utterly independent, utterly self-existent. He depends on nobody and nothing. He is the one for whom all the issues of life are found, the first cause of all things. But especially, especially his covenant faithfulness to his people is set forth here. Is it any wonder that in the preceding verse he had spoken of Jacob and Israel? Jacob and Israel. And surely to those believing Jews this would have gotten them thinking. Why is it that our forefather Jacob had his name changed from that name which means deceiver to the name which means one who strives and conquers with God? How was it that that weakling and liar became one of the great heroes of the faith? Well, it was this great Lord Jehovah who revealed himself unto that poor, pitiful man. He turned that Jacob into an Israel, and he is still in the business today of turning doubting Jacobs into believing Israels, the God of covenant faithfulness. I put this as well as a reason why waiting upon the Lord is so logical, and that is he is the everlasting God. That's how he's described 
right there. The everlasting God. This mighty name of God, it towers over us. And it stands in defiance of every single thing you can observe and recognize in the created order. Everything else, beginning, middle, and end. Beginning, middle, and end. Everything else, there is progression, there is development, there is decay, there is change. But here is one who is holy and entirely other. The God who is outside time and transcends time, for he created time. God possesses eternity. So that not only is he without beginning and without end, the Alpha and the Omega, but there is no development with God. There is no becoming with God. There is not even the slightest bit of change with God. And so, my friend, you can take this with you today. That every single one of God's promises is ground, grounded in the being of the one who is without any shadow of turning, without any change. He was the same before you entered into your season of trial. He will be the same after you emerge from this season of trial. And he is the same right now. The everlasting God also in his faithfulness. I would add this as another further reason. Waiting on the Lord is logical because God is the creator. That's how he's described. The creator of the ends of the earth. And so as it were, the prophet here is gathering together all of the wonders of creation, all of the majestic mountains, all of the mighty waterfalls, all of the intricate life forms, all that is beautiful and glorious about this wide creation, ascribing it all to this, the first cause of all, Jehovah God. He also speaks in this manner about the stars in particular, in beautiful, stirring language in verse 26, immediately before our text. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things, who brings out their host by number. He calls them all by name, by the greatness of his might and by the strength of his power. Not one is missing. Here we have an argument from the greater to the lesser. He begins with a greater display of his power. Look up at the stars. Look how there in the stark darkness each one of those blazing lights burns through all that emptiness into our atmosphere. Consider the power that spoke these stars into existence. Consider the wisdom of the one who knows them all exhaustively, personally, even by name. Consider how he sustains them in their power and greatness and brightness and glory. There, the greater display of his power. And now consider the lesser. Consider your problems. Consider the things that are keeping you up at night. The things that seem as though they are too great for anyone to solve. What are your problems compared to such a God? Is there anything outside of his ability to control and govern? 
Is there any problem too great that he cannot solve in an instant and where something is left unsolved and we are left in the midst of the problem, can we doubt for an instant that he is able to work even those things for our good and for his glory? Is it any wonder that this doctrine of God as creator is under such attack from the devil? Does he not know that if he can cause his people to doubt in the reality of God as creator, then all the other promises of God, they fall to the dirt as worthless. It's only as our hearts are directed into the God of creation that we come to know the true comfort of these words. Add this further. Reality waiting on the Lord is logical because God is wise. Says his understanding is unsearchable. Here we have the infinite reservoirs of God's infinite glorious wisdom. He who governs all things from the beginning and appoints all things for a good end. The one for whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found. He is the one who knows each one of you exhaustively. Everything that ever happened to you or could have happened to you or should have happened to you, it is all not a mystery to him. Your future itself is an open book to him. The inner recesses of your heart are before his all-searching eye. His wisdom, it says, is unsearchable. You'd imagine what it would be for a child to go to the beach and to bring a small cup with him to go out to the great ocean And to take some of that water in his cup, bring it to his father and say, Look, I've contained the ocean in my cup. Well, infinitely more foolish, of course, would be the thought of comprehending or understanding the unsearchable riches of God's wisdom. Deuteronomy 29.29 The hidden things belong unto the Lord, but those things that he has revealed belong to us and to our children, that we may do all the works of this law. God has hidden some things from us, but he has revealed in his word a measure of his unsearchable wisdom, that we may know him, that we may find him, that we may direct our paths. And how much the more when everything else in our life becomes turbulent, chaotic, where we know where not to hang our hand and to support our weight, here is the unchanging and unsurpassed wisdom of God. There's this further, waiting upon the Lord is logical because God is never tired. It says here, he neither faints nor is weary. I wonder if perhaps it's something particularly important for parents to understand. You think about what it is to have a family full of small children and, and we love our children, of course, but they all require a little bit of our energy. They always have something they're talking to us about, something they need from us, something that they need for, in terms of care and love and support and guidance. And sometimes it feels like our, our strength is depleted. There's nothing more that we can give. And, and if we're not careful, we can start to regard God in such a way. 
Maybe you think, well, I think about all the different problems, even among the people that I know, how they're all going to God with their problems. And what is one other set of, of concerns and worries to bring before God? But how wonderful to know that there is not even the slightest bit of weakness with this God, that he is strength, that he is vitality, that he is life. And were all of his children to cry out to heaven with one voice at one moment, the infinite reserves of his strength, power, and might could never be exhausted. He can meet all the needs of his precious people. Waiting on the Lord is logical also because God is generous. He gives power to the weak and to those who have no might. He increases strength. Just think about those two words. He gives. He gives. My God is a cheerful giver. He is the cheerful giver. Look at anything in this fallen, sad world that has any beauty, any goodness, any nobility, any purity, it all traces back to him. I love what it says in Belgian Confession. Article 1. He is the overflowing fountain of all good. And yet all the goodness of this world which he has bestowed and enriched, none of it enriches him. None of it adds to him. His glory is infinitely greater than a million billion worlds of creation. He needs nothing yet all have received from his hand. And so though everyone if they possess anything, it comes from his generous dealings. It's especially his people who can speak of his generosity. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, we come to know him as the loving father who condescends when we are the lowest, when we are the weakest, when we feel as though we cannot take even another step, when we are caught up in the muck and the mire of our sin and depravity. Does he not lift us up, planting our feet upon the solid rock, giving a joyful song to our mouths, directing our ways unto the knowledge of himself? It's the children of God who know supremely the generosity of God, not dealing even with those who could never deserve such treatment, but those who have actively sinned away every grace and every mercy. Such is the generosity of God. But I tell you, as you pile up each and every one of these arguments, as you see it all amounting to this great supreme case for why waiting upon the Lord is so logical, so wise, and so reasonable. Is there not this clear implication of how unwise, of how ridiculous, of how foolish it would be not to wait upon such a God? Oh, you who are without a saving relationship with God, you who are without God in the world, I would ask you this simple question. What do you have against my God? What of all these perfections, which one of them do you think you can live without? 
What slightest bit of defect or fault can you find in him that would justify holding him at a distance or holding his word as something that will fall to the ground void? Do you not see how supremely gracious God is to condescend even to reveal these glorious attributes and perfections? You know, our fathers would say that God is simple. And by that, they meant not that he is easy to understand, but that he is not a composite being. He's not composed of so many parts such that you can say, well, there is his wisdom, there is his power, there is God as creator, there is his grace. And you can say, well, these are all different things. Yes, according to our reckoning and to our thinking, we must think about one after the other. But in God, they are not divided. And all these things... To be God is not to be one thing and another thing. It is to be God. As our fathers would say, all that is in God is God. All of these things are just different revelations of his Godness. And so as it were, the undivided, perfect perfection of God is refracted through the prism of his revelation into all these glorious hues of the rainbow such that we can comprehend a brief glimmer of the one who dwells in unapproachable light. That God should reveal himself in this way to sinners with these words that capture but a small measure of his unsurpassed glory is something that we, even that, could never deserve. And it further adds to the guilt and condemnation to those who would willingly forsake and reject and disbelieve such a God. We find not only in this passage there is waiting on the Lord is hard and waiting on the Lord is logical, but also waiting on the Lord is worth it. Listen to these words that we find here. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Well-known words, words I'm sure you've seen written on Sort of Christian calendars and things like that, having a beautiful nature scene in the backdrop. But of course, seeing these familiar words used in such a way can actually make them seem cheap and futile even. Perhaps I wonder, is there someone even here who, as you've heard me say these things and heard me read these words, what you really want to do is stand up right now and scream at me, Are you serious? Don't come at me with platitudes. Don't come at me with words that seem like they're from a Hallmark card. You don't know my life. You don't know what I'm going through. How can this possibly speak to my lived reality? Well, my friend, before you would say that about the word of God, shall we not unfold what's said here and see if there is not a word from God for you this evening. You notice that in these verses there's essentially two groups that are referred to. There are the fallers and there are 
the waiters. First, let's look at the fallers. Verse 30, even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. Now the thing to understand about these two words that are translated from the Hebrew, youths and young men, is they both communicate the same basic idea, which is young men at the peak of their natural strength. So children, you're not here to think of older men whose strength has been robbed of them by the effects of old age. You're not to think of people who are out of shape or weak in their their bodies. No, you should think of strong athletes who've exercised and they've honed their bodies for peak maximum performance. Here is natural strength at its height, at its greatest glory. But what happens when you take the strongest of people and you make them run? You make them run and run and run and run some more. And and what? They want to break? No. Keep on running. Keep on running. Keep on running. Keep on running. What's going to happen to these strong young men? Well, I'll tell you what's going to happen. Sooner or later, you'll find those strong men face down in the dirt, utterly broken and beaten and exhausted. What is the lesson there? Well, that is what natural strength gets you. That is where natural strength must ultimately arrive. And that tells you today that you may think that you are the strongest person in this congregation and your strength is utterly a delusion. Maybe you think that you're very emotionally strong. Other people in your family in a crisis, they'll fall to pieces. But you can be strong for them. You can be strong in the midst of whatever life throws at you. Maybe you think that you're very intellectually strong. Oh, you're strong enough in your mind to understand the Bible, smart enough to apply it to yourself. Or maybe you think you're strong enough to serve the Lord, strong enough to do something for Christ's kingdom. And I'll tell you, if that's what you think, if you think that your strength in yourself can amount to anything, It's only because you haven't yet encountered the crisis that can snap your so-called strength like a twig. And ultimately all strength, all strength of sinful fallen humanity, it all amounts to nothing. But I wonder, is there anyone here who knows what it's like to be among the fallers? Do you know what it's like to be there face down in the dirt, to look at all your life as one long series of failures. In the searching light of the word of God, you come to see that even the greatest of your so-called achievements, it amounted to nothing. You have failed yourself. You have failed those whom you love. You have failed even God himself. What will you do if sooner or later you find yourself in such a place as that? 
You keep on struggling. Maybe I can do this. Maybe I can do that. Maybe this will make the difference. You just lay down and die in despair. No, my friend, do neither of those things. What you need to do is wait. What you need to do is wait. You need to hurry up and wait. You need to wait upon this Lord. Because it's not just a story about the fallers. It's also about the waiters. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. Here we have these wonderful promises given to those who in contrast to all their weakness, in contrast to all their futility, all their failure, all their mistakes, they can find here a reliable, trustworthy God whom they can expect to deliver each one of the promises he has bestowed to them in the gospel. Notice one Amazing promise after another to those who wait upon the Lord. There is the promise that they shall revive. It says here, those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. Though broken and beaten and downcast, they shall not remain in that condition. Those who wait on the Lord shall be revived and brought to newness of spiritual life. You know, it's interesting that word in the Hebrew, revive, it has the idea of exchange. Do a word study, you'll see it's sometimes used for exchanging one object for a better object, one pair of clothes for a better pair of clothes. And so here, it's used for those who exchange their natural strength for a supernatural strength, the strength that does not come from human might or power or righteousness or ability, but a strength and a might and a power that comes from above. God bestows supernatural might and strength so that when the believer, humanly speaking, is brought into circumstances that it seems he cannot take even another step, that he must despair of life itself, God revives the hearts of his people, causing them to look unto him and to his grace as their all-powerful sufficiency. There's this promise as well. Those who wait on the Lord shall soar. It says they shall mount up with wings like eagles. You've ever seen an eagle? There with the wings outstretched seeming to climb higher and higher almost effortlessly on those great billows of air lifting them high into the heavens. It's something that's mysterious. But even in the midst of the hardest of circumstances, here is a grace that God can bestow to his people, the experience of being caught up with Christ in heavenly places, of having such a global, eternal, spiritual perspective upon your life and circumstances such that you do not doubt but firmly believe that all things do indeed work together for good for those who love God according to his great purpose. It's an amazing thing to contemplate, but God does give such a hope and a waiting upon him that we are able not only to survive, but thrive in the midst of life's circumstances. 
say this promise as well. Those who wait on the Lord shall endure. Notice how it says they shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Now, if I'm not mistaken, this is setting forth the Christian life as it is a journey to that heavenly Zion and the traveling to this heavenly city in the way of faith and repentance. It's set forth in two ways, as a running and as a walking. And so the one who runs the Christian life, there is a zeal, there is an earnestness, there is an urgency to seize the day for the Lord, to live in obedience and submission to His will, to bring glory to His name. There is an energy with this journeying the Christian life, but also there is walking. And I think that walking is including as well, because the one who walks, you understand, takes great care where he places his feet. He walks carefully to avoid stumbling, to avoid going astray, to going off the path, to stumbling and falling to his destruction. So it is, this is also part of Christian maturity. Walking with intention, walking with deliberation, not being caught up in the cares of this world or making shipwreck of our faith. And I wonder, amidst a congregation like this, is it possible that there are some running Christians who need to learn to walk? Yes, there's there's zeal. Yes, there's fire. You want to seize the day for the Lord. But you need to learn that maturity, that carefulness, that stability. Perhaps from other mature Christians who have walked this journey for many years. But likewise, I wonder, are there some walking Christians who need to learn to run? Yes, you have stayed close to the Lord, but that fire of your first love, it has begun to smolder and grow cold. And you need to remember what it was to serve Him with un, uh, unreserved obedience and loyalty and devotion. And could it be that God brings together walking Christians and running Christians that we'd learn from one another and all of us come to the mind of Christ as he preserves us all the way unto his heavenly city in the way of faith and obedience. Amazing promises these given to those who wait upon the Lord. And the thing that would bring me such sadness would be that everything that I have said to you, dear one, may have just brought more discouragement. You've heard all these things and you can say, I hear these promises, but I do not see them being fulfilled in my life. I do not feel myself reviving. I certainly don't see myself as soaring. I despair that I shall even endure to the end. What hope is there for me? Well, my friend, I can speak to you of hope in only one place, and that is of one who revived. There was one who was a servant of the Lord, who in the fullness of time came forth, Lo, I come to do your will, O God. In the volume of the books it is written of me. Such a boundless reservoir of grace and life and strength and vitality was found in him that all the forces of hell and of the devil 
and of sinful fallen humanity they all had him in their target they sought to grind him down into the dirt to drag him down to tempt him to try him but all the way through his life he was one who perfectly waited upon his father such that his very dying words were father into your hands I commend my spirit. And this same one who waited on the Lord, he revived. He revived. He exchanged his mortality for immortality. His corruptible state for an incorruptible state. His humiliation for glorification. And now Jesus Christ, once crucified, now lives and lives forevermore. So that as you, weak one, you look unto him, do you not see that he also looks to you? In the midst of your despair, he says to you, in words of power, take up your mat and walk. Come out of your tomb. Look to me without strength. Look to me without power. And I will revive you. And the same one who revived, did he not also soar? Did he not soar higher than any eagle to the furthest reaches of this universe? He ascended to the right hand of the majesty which is on high, there with all dominion, power, and might, and authority. So that as we do look unto him, we find that we can seek those things which are above, not those things upon the earth. We need not live for this perishing, dying world. We live for a better city. And there we may have even a taste of that heaven through communion and union with the one who has ascended. And the same one who revived and soared, does he not also endure? This one on the right hand of the Father, does he not speak as he did in the days of his flesh, lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Dear Christian, though mother may forget her suckling child, I cannot forget you, for your names are written on the palms of my hand. And there cannot be one of his precious people that can slip out of those strong hands of love. We will endure, believer, because he endures. And all those who come unto him, he will surely raise them up on the last day. Glorious things here. Spoken of the promises of the gospel, realized in Jesus Christ. But is there anyone here who, having heard all these things, says... That ultimately, I am not weak enough to need this Christ. I am strong in myself. I am fine as I am. Oh, if that is you today, then I would leave you with these words that I pray would ring in your ears. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. Do you really believe that you will be the exception. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever.